0: This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking to Richard Hack. Now, I've actually known Richard for a few years. Um, I worked for him uh, in 2012 as an intern. It was my very first job uh, in the advertising industry at um, Richard's agency, The Taboo Group. And so in this interview, I talk to Richard about how he helped build Taboo from its humble beginnings to the successful agency that it is today Um, and all the kind of trials and tribulations along the way. We also speak about Richard's new venture. Um, He has just co-founded Demon's Hot Sauce. That's D-I-E-M-E-N-S. And so, we talk about some of the entrepreneurial lessons that he's taken away from both of those different experiences um, and how some are different from the other. It's a really, really fascinating discussion. Rich is an amazing guy. So, let's go talk to him.
1: So, who are you and what do you do? My name is Richard Hack. I am managing director of Demon's Hot Sauce. Um, and previously, I was strategy director and co-founder of taboo, which um, initially began as a non-traditional agency specialising in youth culture. and today is now a creative agency that does everything from digital social media, events, experiential activations all the way to creative strategy and you know brand equity building.
0: So some might say you're a serial entrepreneur. Some might say that. I wouldn't,
1: I wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. I think there's... No, it's, it's a fair comment, but I think that, that term serial entrepreneur to me, um, when I come across somebody like that, it's somebody that um, usually at any given time might have three or four businesses on the go at one time. At the same time. You know, and right. they roll from project to project to project to project. And um, I feel like I'm a little different to that and that um, whatever sort of entrepreneurial approaches or things that I do... I tend to have fewer and go maybe a little bit more, I guess, uh, deeper and deeper and heavier into things mm-hmm. um, than people who, you know, are, are quite skilled at flipping businesses and having lots of things on the go. Different approaches, not that one's better than the other. Um, but yeah, serial entrepreneurs for me are people who are just constantly, you know, got, got half a dozen balls in the air.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you like to focus.
1: I do. Yeah, okay. yeah. I like to focus. Um, uh, that's, that's something that I think is, uh, you know, not that I didn't wish that maybe I could do a handful more things all at once, but yeah, I do like to focus and get, get quite hands dirty and involved.
0: So before we jump into some of those um, ventures you've had, I just want to actually touch on this point. Why is your approach focusing uh, on one particular thing
1: at a time and then moving on to the next? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, I think it's personality based really um, I and potentially that links to risk profile a little bit more like any entrepreneur is taking risks um, and and has probably a you know quite a quite a sharp risk profile but For me, if I don't have a really strong knowledge of the business that I'm in and what I'm doing, and if I don't understand what's under the hood to sort of as granular detail I can get to, then I probably feel a little bit less secure from a risk standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to be able to um, be in a business where, you know, I can't sort of do everything, but I have a good understanding or I develop a technical understanding as best I can of each facet of of what that business needs to be able to run and be successful. Um, So it's almost like a bit of a general manager approach as opposed to like a CEO approach where I like to be in the engine room and understand, you know, everything around it. And I think that links back to my risk profiling that, okay, if I have to do something or anything within the business um, because... You know, I don't have the resources, or I don't have the stuff to do it. I can physically do it. Um, mm. I also take a lot of satisfaction out of that, um, out of being able to work in the business as well as on the business. Yeah. Um, so then, on the other hand, people who, who maybe have a lot—if you've got lots of projects on one go—you can't get to that level of detail. Mm. You just there's just not enough time. Mm. So, yeah. Okay.
0: It's interesting you say that because I would think that um, having all your eggs in one basket is maybe more risky um, because you're not, I guess, diversifying a portfolio of different things. Um, but I did hear a story, uh, a friend of mine, Steve Santino, he's a Melbourne guy you um, might know. He, uh, he's kind of got this theory that um, everybody's an entrepreneur. Um, most people are just selling their own products as in themselves and mm-hmm. they have one client, their employer. Yep. Yeah. And in in an essence, in, in a way, that's the most risky way of going about life because you have no kind of other streams of income. Um, and if your employer or your client, inverted quotes, gets uh, upset with you for some reason, they can fire you and um, <laughs> you're out of, out of a job or out of income. Yes. So it's kind yes. of an interesting approach.
1: I think that's a really valid point of view, yeah. I think... Um I think too a lot of that touches on the notion of, of sales and what is selling. You know, are you selling yourself to an employer? Of course you are. You know, if you if you take that sort of career path of, of um, you know long term job security and and you're working in the corporate world, of course there's a healthy paranoia around could you get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it comes down to and this has been commented on plenty. You know, what what's what's the definition of entrepreneurialism? Mm-hmm. And how do you define it? Yeah. Um, so there's lots of lots of ways to look at that.
0: Sure. So let's uh, talk about some of the businesses that you've started, ran, um, built. Um, so let's start off with the Taboo Group. Yes. So uh, tell me
1: the story. Well, Taboo started really as a uh, as a sales and promotions focused business. Um, Andrew McKinnon, who's the managing director and the you know the key founder of Taboo. He um, he and I met at university, we both studied at Monash Caulfield and Andrew went overseas and learnt um, uh, for a year and learnt a sales promotion model over there that was servicing um, retail businesses but mostly service providers in retail, so hair salons, day spas, gymnasiums, beauty therapy places. And we would develop coupons and uh, you know, gift vouchers. Uh, we used to you know, obviously call them promotions that we'd you know, just approach the right target audience on the street and encourage them to come in and try those businesses uh, with a suite of services for a hugely discounted price. Um, but it was a, a commission model. We, we had a 100% commission sort of model for our, for our sales team and we were the sales team ourselves. And over years, we built that out to be, um, you know, a, su- a successful business initially. We had two offices, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. Um, we, at any time, had up to, you know, 40 people working for us, 20 in each office or more. Um, and then, but that business fairly quickly evolved to starting to do more promotions and event activations for brands. So... In marketing and advertising, of course, you have field teams that go out there and do product sampling for one thing or another. Mm -hmm. You know, the sort of people that you meet at the Australian Open Tennis or at the train station or at some event that you've gone to that are pushing a different product. And a lot of those field teams, um, you know, while they're good personalities and, and, and good people, you know, they don't necessarily have sales training. Because we were doing this work on the street, our team was hard nose trained in sales and how to communicate with people and how to how to push a product in that in that sort of way so we quickly started to win business from from other agencies and larger clients to go and do that sort of field marketing and at that time we began to see an opportunity to start to push creative back up that funnel where we'd say hey this event activation that you asked us to do could have been improved by this and this and this we were able to grow the business um, into more of an agency as well because often at those event activations, the client would turn up, but the agency staff wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So the larger agency staff wouldn't. Um, and anybody that's that's working in agency land at the moment and listening to this, I'd, I'd encourage you to be careful about that <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's where... Um, that's where we were able to sort of eat their lunch because we'd make these great connections with the clients, the brand managers, the marketing managers, you know, being on the ground at the activation, talking to them about their brands, having the consumer front and centre, um, getting face to face with them and stuff and so it gave us an opportunity to sort of win more budget, win mm-hmm. more events, more activations, all that sort of stuff, work a little bit more into the traditional media space and that's kind of how to do um, grew and developed and evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, fast forward quite a few years now, um, it's an agency that is, I think, known for its ability to cut through traditional media communications, um, engage with, uh, you know, a target audience in a, in a unique way still, um, do develop communications that are often working on the basis of word of mouth as opposed mm-hmm. to having to purchase media, um or as much and um yeah and my my experience there started to evolve more and more and my studies started to focus more and more in on strategy and so we were able to start to to do a lot more marketing strategy work and more of that stuff that happens at the top of the food chain in agency land
0: i think i'd probably refer to like i know that taboo is now known as i guess a creative agency Mm -hmm. um which seems to be what all agencies eventually end up as. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They start off yeah. in some niche and then they slowly just add more and more plethora of services to their offering because I think the, the client just demands that they want a kind of a full suite uh, a full suite of services and, and a full service agency. Yeah. But I think I would refer to Taboo if, if I kind of had to nail it down to one thing. It's maybe like a guerrilla marketing uh, mm-hmm. agency um, yeah. because you're right. I think a lot of the campaigns that have come out of Taboo over the years are very... Um, Um, Well, you you talked about word of mouth, but I'm kind of thinking more... um, They kind of buck the system a little bit, and and they try and be a little bit provocative sometimes. um, So, it's it's kind of a cool place to be, and a great uh, place to create interesting um, campaigns that people will notice and talk about. So, um, I I wanted to kind of ask you about, you know, starting off as... Really, more of a promotions agency, and transitioning through this period of you know being kind of guerrilla marketing, word of mouth, and then maybe more today, just a full service um, creative agency. We we're talking before we hit record about um, how businesses will change and evolve over time. What are kind of some of the key milestones over the the taboo's life that uh, that took it through that journey, that sequence? Sure. Um, and I suppose there's maybe some challenges in there as well, as, yeah. you know, with, with anything in life when there's change, there's, there's challenges, so. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, well, look, I think there were, uh, there were probably the, a couple of the key mi- milestones were when we began to um, win clients at the larger end of town. So, so a couple of big wins for us happened in, I'm trying to think now, it sort of would have been around our fourth or fifth year of business. Um, where we one work from National Australia Bank and from CUB, mm-hmm. and those sorts of clients, as everybody knows, you know they have they have a big budgets. We weren't we weren't getting the big big budgets by any means, but. You know, we were an agency that was coming from sort of budgets around five to $10,000, you mm-hmm. know, for a project budget. Right. You know, and we were doing a dozen of them at a time mm-hmm. um, along with still that sales promotional work that we used to do to bring money in, you know. So we, we were making our revenue hard and fast in that sort of, you know, real low-end sort of stuff. And then, you know, you get sort of a five-figure budget from, you know, or, or a nice five-figure budget from a CBA or a National Australia Bank and then... You know, eventually, a six-figure budget comes along, and that changes your agency. That changes the business dramatically, um, for the better, of course. Uh, but it also puts you on an accelerated path of of learning and development, and, <laughs> yeah. and staff, and bringing that that sort of those sort of things into the equation. Yeah. Um, and at this time, two thousand five, you know, two thousand six, uh, Andrew and I were uh, we were uh, twenty. Four, twenty-five years old, mm-hmm. right? And you know, you've got two officers and teams of twenty. You know, so people <laughs> like it, it. It's it's in at the time. It didn't seem like it. Just seemed like you know, this is what we're doing. But at mm-hmm. the time, it was you know, looking back, that was um, quite a lot going on. And you're hiring people
0: who are probably more experienced than you, and maybe have yeah, more some... years under their belt than you. Like yeah.
1: That actually started to come a little later, but it's a good point. We we got to a stage where we realised that, um, you know, we needed to hire in some people who had client-side experience and more corporate sort of experience yeah. as the budgets grew and as the opportunities got larger. Um, and we also needed to bring in learning from outside because we've been – teaching and training and evolving people from the ground up, um, people a couple of years or a few years younger than ourselves, very quickly you're like, okay, we've we've bought this thoroughbred horse, you know, we're paying this person 120 plus kind of thing. We need to get the most out of them. How yeah. can we get the most out of them? Mm-hmm. And it can come as a bit of a surprise when you're employing people like that for the first time and you realise, hey, this is somebody that I've put on as much or more money than you know we're making ourselves and they're not happy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and they're not happy rightfully so because they want career progression and they want all these sorts of things but you've really got to lift your game to be able to you know i guess you know at that time and at that age of who we are to be able to manage and lead that sort of team that was coming in so yeah lots of different challenges with that otherwise milestones that stick out for me you know, there's so many things to look back on but the gfc was a big milestone you know, the GFC was something that rocked our business, um, uh, and to get through it and come out of it still alive um, was was something that yeah, I'll never I'll never forget. Um, and then, are you are you proud of what you
0: guys did over that period? Yeah, because because like yeah. the reason I ask that is you have people's like livelihoods and and not just yourself, right? Like mm. at the end of the day, I think when you run a business, you go, all right, well, I can take it, or leave it, I want it to live, but when what I do affects other people's lives, that's a whole nother level of pressure.
1: That's right. Yeah, it certainly is. And having to let people go, mm-hmm. um, and whether that's through redundancy or whether that's, you know, for other reasons is is when you're doing it firsthand, it's, it's one of the most difficult things you have to do in commercial life. Uh, and... It's particularly painful, I think, in business to be letting people go as a result of something like a GFC, when you know that that person is dedicated to the business, it's a hard worker, they've got great skills, and for one reason or another, you, you know, for forces that I wouldn't like to say beyond your control, because you know, a GFC is a GFC. It's, not, it, it's there are external factors, but as a business, you've got to tackle those head on, and you've got to be accountable for it. Um, but yeah, very tough. So we came through the GFC um, uh, without, you know, making too long a story out of it, but we had um, done everything we could do to get ourselves to the skeleton crew that we felt, you know, were were the best of our best. Yeah. And we thankfully had... Prepared for the GFC, we had we had um, some cash reserves in the bank, Mm -hmm. and we came down to a really small crew. Like you know, we all could sit around our boardroom table and look at one another, and we were at a point where we had to we were either going to have to let one of the key people go, or we were all going to have to take hit together as a team. Mm -hmm. And we spoke about it openly and um, almost democratised the decision Mm -hmm. because Andrew and I were having so much difficulty trying to think, you know, who goes. And everyone unanimously decided to go down in time, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But then everyone came back to work and worked every single day as hard as we possibly could until we got through the other end of it. And then the phone started to ring and we started to get actually... um, Quite a bit of business as the GFC started to break, I think because we were known as an agency that you'd get great bang for buck. Mm -hmm. So when marketing budgets and things started to open up again, we were one of the first people, I think, on our client's roster to call because they had limited budgets but they needed maximum results Mm -hmm. and we got to work again. But um, the best and most satisfying part was towards the end of that uh, period where we were able to back pay every single person in the skeleton crew that did hours... Unpaid yeah. previously to protect their jobs, mm-hmm. um, and in the end, you know, none of that team had to sacrifice a dime because we paid it all back out, and you know, bonuses once we once we got ourselves above water again. So. Yeah, that was that was definitely a milestone and something that that I think everyone who was there at the agency that at that time is really proud of that we're able to come out of it.
0: And that's even more sweet when you're kind of not expecting to have that obligation to have to pay back pay people <coughs> and people uh, put in the effort and not expecting that return. Um, yes. Yeah, that's I've not I've not heard that story before, so that's, that's yeah. Fine. So, what are some other lessons that you learned, whether it's maybe personally about yourself, because I think you learn a lot through running a business about yourself, Mm -hmm. um, or more generally about, um, actually, you know what, I'm going to stick with that. What what have you learned about yourself through running a business, um, particularly when you're quite young, didn't have the, the, I guess, background of climbing the corporate hierarchy and getting all that training and you know, slowly starting to manage people and when you just kind of thrust into it like you spoke about before, what have you learned about yourself through that experience?
1: There's no end to the, to the learnings. So really it's a case of what, what are the really meaningful ones. Um, for me, it's very important in business to understand what your personal values are And that can translate to the values of the business you're creating, you know, the company values or the brand values or whatever it is. But they're they're never going to be exactly the same. But it's important, I think, to have the self-awareness to appreciate that your values are going to be somehow inflicted upon the business and the people who are working within the business. And in the earlier days with Taboo, when we were younger, you know, that... Reflection wasn't there. You didn't, you know, think to yourself, "Oh, why did I behave like that?" Mm-hmm. Or, or "Or why is this particular situation with a supplier or a client really, you know, boiling me up?" and uh, "Why did I react that way to this scenario?" However, as you make more and more mistakes, <laughs> and you can't sort of understand how did that happen or why did that mistake make you know you eventually find those answers in well okay it's got it's got just as much to do with me as it did the the situation Mm -hmm. or the circumstances and so what is it about my behavior and the way uh i respond to different things that that come at me during any given day that i need to know more about so big learning for me was um appreciating the fact that you should be aware of more and more aware of who you are and what your values are because that allows you to be acutely um uh, conscious of why you're treating an employee a certain way or or how you need to be in a certain situation with employees.
0: So what about learnings from a company perspective from from the perspective of the agency what what have you learned about running a business in that perspective?
1: Um well so plenty of things plenty of things to consolidate it down to a, a few that spring to mind one is definitely that the team is really paramount to the creative work that you're going to put out there. And, um, you know, that may sound obvious, but I think pulling together a cohesive team is really a big, big challenge as an agency, if you're running an agency, Um, because you never want to have two people that are good at the same thing. Mm. But what that means... I think, diversity, right? You do. And I think what that means in creative land is that you never want to have two people that think the same way. So a lot of the recruitment um, that we used to do, and I, 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 not so much from the account service side of things, but from the creative side of things, is about trying to find team members that think differently, and it's less about looking at a portfolio of their work, because often. You know, most work, as we all know, in agency is teamwork, right? So you can say, oh, I worked on that campaign or I worked on this or look at this that I did or that. And then you go, okay, but what elements of that are you responsible for Mm -hmm. as opposed to this person? And that's not to be interrogatory. It's just to go, well, you know, how much can you really tell from somebody's portfolio unless they're the illustrator or the first artist? How do you, in a recruitment process, break down to how does somebody think Mm -hmm. what's their approach, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, are they a logical thinker or are they a radical thinker? Mm -hmm. Are they completely rational or are they irrational? Mm -hmm. And you want a bit of everything in your creative team. So, when you get that right, I think, is almost like having, you know, a a fantastic orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, that those particular musicians and where their skills were at that particular time, and their different pl- playing styles, all just complemented one another together. And all of a sudden, you had the greatest performing orchestra in the in in the world at that given time. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah. So so getting a team together that that is as as best you can, um, you know, uh, playing those sorts of chords is 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 one of the big challenges of agency and a learning experience in recruitment. I think for me that was. That was really great. When it does work, it's just the best. I love working with a great creative team. I'm sure anybody in agency that, that works with creative from an account service standpoint or in creative, you know, hopefully you've had those moments where there's been those three or four other people that you're working together with and you just know the work you're getting at is... Really great. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And we should mention that you were um, heading up strategy at yes. TIBU, so yeah. that was kind of your involvement with the, the creative team. Yeah. And just one point I wanted to make on the um, the kind of team element you're talking about this beautiful symphony that's working together. Um, it's constantly changing and evolving as well because, you know, people leave, you need to hire new people when new work comes in, so you've got to sure. try and fit and mold it as it goes on.
1: Yeah, yeah, so. that's right, that's right. And it's, you know, I think, um, so Reese Hobbins, who's Creative Director at Taboo, who, you know, I've had a, a long, great career working with, he uses sports analogies a lot to describe the team. And I guess it's no different that if you're, you know, running a, a football team or a basketball team or something like that, as soon as you have a player that leaves in a particular area that was a great player, you know, finding, you know, refilling that position becomes something that you know it's going to affect the whole dynamics mm. of of that entire team. So, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah.
0: So, speaking of... Um you know, evolution and things changing. Mm. Um, you've had some changes recently over the past couple of years. You've left Taboo, yes. um, which is probably a big decision for you. Yeah. Um, do you want to really briefly tell me about how that kind of went about and then we'll, we'll move on to um, what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, well, look, you know, my tenure at Taboo is 15 years, so it's a, it's a long time. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I'd always wanted to have at least two careers, yeah. not just one. So it was something that was kind of always on the cards a, a bit for me, but there was just a, never really a, a, a known period of when that, mm-hmm. you know, when those paths might go um, in a different direction. The vision for Taboo was one that's, you know, as you say, around creative agency and exciting and going that way. I wanted to find myself in a position where I had a bit more control over a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I did also want to get into a uh, business environment where I was making something, manufacturing, mm. you know, you hear a lot of that these days as well. I think people in agency too, or professional services in general, you know, you work, you do great work, you do a lot of work, but um, sometimes the work, when you look back on it, it it can um, it can seem as though there's nothing really physical that's left there for
0: you. Yeah, well, it's entirely IP-based. That's
1: right, it's IP-based, yeah.
0: So you're working on now uh, a product, right? Yeah. Uh, It's called Demons, not the demon with horns, but uh, it's a... Well, it's funny, the uh, irony of that, it's a hot sauce brand.
1: (laughs) That's right, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you, why hot sauce? Why hot sauce? If you had ever asked me when I was... 16 years old, if I'd be running a hot sauce company, I would have laughed, so <laughs> I'd start with that. Uh, look, hot sauce is something that, as a product, I've always enjoyed, oh, well, I've enjoyed hot sauce since I was about you know, 20 years old. Um, I met a couple of close friends of mine when I was living in London, and they were hot sauce fanatics, they're Canadians, they grew up on the stuff, uh, they converted me to a bit of a fanatic and uh they since moved to australia this is douglas and derek compo i'm talking about both founders of demons as well they've been making hot sauce since they were kids uh we'd spoken about it as one of those projects that many people do you have these blue sky projects Mm -hmm. um uh, that you want to work on and at the time that i was looking for other things to do uh this was one of many that, that I was considering and the pieces just fell into place and by pieces I mean there were a number of market factors and and forces that suggested that this this would be a good opportunity. The growth of hot sauce has been significant all over the world. So, you know, in North America the growth rates are 20% year on year sort of thing. Um, Here in Australia, it's huge, it's massive. It's the highest growing condiment by far. Um, uh, in, in the United States. So here you go, you're talking before
0: about getting really really deep into something when you're, when you're working on it mm-hmm. and so you're talking about the growth of condiments and all it, like, you know, um, I don't know if someone who's running five bis- businesses at once would have that level of understanding of one particular business they're in, so that's just kind of an example of Yeah, it-
1: possibly not <laughs> um, and the then in, here in Australia as well, the local market factors, you know, we'd seen the, uh, when I say we, I'm talking about us as the founders, you know, Doug Derek, myself and, and Reese Hobbins again um, uh, from Taboo. The palate of Australia has become more and more, um, uh, I think, excited by chilli mm-hmm. and hot food. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've also got the multicultural movement here in Australia that's you know now a generation old or more where we have a lot more people in this country who have grown up on chili themselves whether Mm -hmm. from India or or Asia or, or North America or anywhere over the world so the Australian palate is 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 getting far more familiar and and there's a lot more demand for these sorts of flavors so from then on a lot of our work just initially started with the product and getting the product as good as it could be and the Stinger Hot Sauce that we make uh, was awarded silver medal at the World Hot Sauce Awards in Louisiana last year, and that's uh, obviously we believe our hot sauce is the best around, but that's a nice, you know, sort of external mm. endorsement of the, of the quality of it and the flavor of it. It was a case of just having a, a chance to work on something that we'd have great control over the brand, great control over the creative direction of everything involved in it. Um, And I I really wanted to get involved in a different industry and the food Mm -hmm. industry here in Australia is a really exciting industry to be part of at the moment, that's for sure. Is
0: it? So the reason I ask, I have some doubt over that is because working with the big brands, um, retailers like Coles and Woolworths, is from every brand that I've worked with from a marketing perspective, working with them is a real challenge. Definitely. Because they're they're just brutal in their negotiations. They create... um, uh, private label ripoffs of whatever you've got and put it on the, on the same shelf as you and you just can't do anything about it because it's a geopoly, they, they hold all the power. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is, why is the, the food industry so exciting?
1: Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say for two reasons, even though there's many more than that. I don't believe that that's going to be the state of the game for much longer. Now, when I say much longer, yeah, maybe three, four years longer. If we look five to ten years, I'm not so sure. We have Aldi entering the market. We have um, Amazon coming into the market with mm-hmm. their food offering. This year, yep. This year, right? We have um, more and more innovation in the overseas markets of, say, you know, Metcash going to China, you know. We have, um, and then opportunities over there to talk about all of Southeast Asia. I mean, we've got Indonesia on our doorstep, Mm -hmm. but so domestically, yes, there's a, uh, uh, you know, there's been this duopoly and there's been this, um, power in the hands of these incumbents. However, I think that the game is, is likely to change and that's why I'm excited by it. Now, how quickly it comes, you know, is a bit of a, is a bit of an issue, but, um, yeah, look, I think in, in food it's important to have a diversified strategy that means that, okay, you see that risk, you understand that that's, that's part of the um, game at the moment and then figure out other ways around it. So we have quite a significant food service business. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not just retail. And food service is a whole other dynamic there, but that that helps diversify that risk of the incumbent cause of worse as well. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's that. And I think the second thing that I find really exciting about about the food industry here in Australia gets to the quality of our pro- produce comparatively to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We have a sensational environment here for growing and manufacturing food. And indicators suggest that this is becoming more and more recognised globally. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next generation of food businesses, put it this way, um, that there's just as much revenue, if not the bulk of revenue, being made from overseas channels um, than domestic channels. One of the things that I'd like to see is the Australian consumer starting to value the Australian-made food products um, as much as overseas consumers do because at the moment it seems sometimes that the Australian consumer isn't quite willing to pay for the quality of the locally produced products that we have in this country, and that hurts manufacturers, it hurts farmers, it hurts you know the economy that really could be one of the sectors of our entire economy that's really gonna, um, I think, close the gap and make up for a lot of the, the losses in some of our other areas of economy, like mining and things like that, that, mm-hmm. that that are going to struggle in the next generation. So now that you're in a
0: different kind of type of business, um, a product business versus a service business, what are some of the challenges? You know, maybe what's the top two challenges that you've had to deal with um, producing a product?
1: I think that I didn't have as strong an appreciation for logistics and supply chain management as as I do now, when I began. And the challenges that you come across around, you know, can you even get the raw materials that you need every time you go to place an order? Mm. And what are the price fluctuations of those raw materials that you need to be aware of? And how does that affect your cost of goods sold? And yeah. then how does that, affect, you know, what's the yeah, yeah, yeah. what's the trickle-down effect of that to what you're putting on the shelf and the price that it, that it hits there? And do you have enough leeway in that that let's say, you know, we have a cyclone up in Queensland mm-hmm. and the crops of chili are damaged, what does that do to the price I purchase, you know, a ton of habanero chili at? And then what does that mean for people who are going and buying a bottle of stinger off the shelf of Metcash IGA? Right? right? And is there a connection that the consumer is ever going to make between the fact that you know, last week they spent six ninety five a bottle and next week they're spending seven ninety-five a bottle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, they're not going to accept that. Mm-hmm. And you can't explain that and tell that story. Yeah. Right? So um, there are things around um, manufacturing, production, supply chain chain, logistics, um, that all have different risk profiles to them that you mm-hmm. need to be aware of. And the way that influences not just your operations management but your pricing and your product and the four p's of marketing product price place promotion you know is something that um yeah you really need to really need to school up on and, and have an appreciation for so um yeah because we we you will never we're never going to change that yeah. price on the shelf because of that sort of fluctuation if we can avoid it. Um, and don't worry anybody that's listening, we won't be doing that because of the cyclone and <laughs> same, we're all good. But yeah, so to summarize the, the four P's of marketing, product, price, place, promotion, right? I think this this I would summarize as the biggest learning I've had in this transition is I never fully appreciated the fact that in 15 years of agency, 90% of my work was on one P. Mm. And that's promotion, yeah. Right, product price and place is where I spent 90% of my time in the last two years mm-hmm. on demons, and that I think has made me um, really open my eyes to a lot of the world that probably my clients experienced firsthand. Um, that I really didn't get a, a, a good insight to until I started demons, right? Okay.
0: and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, some of the kind of things that we were thinking about in this area and uh, I think one of the things that really interested me about that conversation was um, you were making this point that most entrepreneurs kind of focus on the idea itself Um, and uh, and that really the idea is not that important Um, in fact you can kind of buy into a business and still become an entrepreneur so tell me about kind of give us a summary of what, what your thoughts are around that because I thought it was sure. super fascinating and, and um, if you're listening it, it'll be a great insight.
1: Yeah well I, I've i spent quite a bit of time over the years um, uh, presenting to various different groups of people around the notion of entrepreneurialism whether it's because of you know working with venture capitalists or tech startups or you know university students looking at entrepreneurialism as a field they want to go into and something that seemed a, that became apparent quite quickly is that people don't talk so much when they're talking entrepreneurialism about franchising mm. you know you can buy a franchise and be an entrepreneur an example that we discussed was you know I, I never really opened my mind up to the notion when i was at university of getting three or four of my mates together and going and buying a spud bar franchise right but there are plenty of people out there that own three or four different franchise businesses you know maybe a spud bar and a subway or something else that are making a significant amount of money per annum and that are absolutely entrepreneurs and that then may have three or four other businesses Mm -hmm. on the go as well. They didn't need to invent So.
0: But it's not sexy, I think, it is why people aren't into it.
1: Yes, yeah, so Because entrepreneurship,
0: <laughs> and I think from the outside looking in, everyone thinks entrepreneurship is sexy. It's like, not. Work. It's not. Like, it's, it's just like a tough slog. And particularly yeah. if you're starting something from scratch with an idea that hasn't been proven, right? You don't mm-hmm. even know if you have what's known as product market fit, right? Yeah. Do, do people actually want to exchange real currency out of their wallet for this, this thing that you're making? Precisely, um, yeah. That's, it's, it's risky, it's hard work, there's a lot of failure along the way to try and get to that point where someone's willing to pay for something. Um, so maybe, maybe it's easier just to buy into something that is already proven. Subway's a proven business. McDonald's is a proven business. Salsa's, like all of these kind of fast food um, franchises or, you know, gyms mowing or whatever, you can just buy into these things because uh, you know that it, it works, you know that it makes
1: money, um, and there's a whole support network as well. You're, you're buying a business on a platter. Yeah, you're buying a business on a platter. There's so much you don't need to think about or worry about. Yeah. People who have travelled the world, gone and seen a particular product or a particular service and gone, hey, we don't have that in Australia. Yep. That would work, work great in Australia. Yeah, and then they come back and through getting some venture capital, getting some borrowing some money or having some resources of their own, they start to import the product. And then again they've got all that support network from that particular product and the owners of that product in their home market. Yep. They can go, here's how you do it. Yeah. Um so yeah, exporting licensing, you know, is another one. Yeah, licensing some technology. Mm-hmm. If you're in the tech space And you would like to be entrepreneurial in the tech space. You don't necessarily need to invent the next killer app. You don't need to invent the next technology. There's technologies out there that you could license. Yeah. You know, and have, I guess, the territory that is Australia or Asia Pacific or something for you to, you know, push that license. And a lot of people who work in licensing, they don't actually even run any of the business. They just own the license and then on-sell the license. License the license, Uh so to speak. So, um... Yeah, I think there's plenty of ways to skin the entrepreneurial cat, so to speak.
0: One other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, the this kind of romanticized notion of failing fast in in the entrepreneurial circles, and it's, it's quite a you know driven by tech uh, driven by tech startups. Um, people think you're to fail fast, and you do the lean startup, and and it's good when you fail because you're learning and you're getting closer to the to the goal. But you had a different opinion.
1: I did. Look, I think, I think that a lot of that um, rhetoric uh, is born out of the tech space, mm-hmm. which is okay and that's fine, um, but I think it's important to realise that there's, there's a, a difference between that sort of notion in the tech space as there is in some other spaces, um, you know, taking either manufacturing or something else, for example. In the tech space, you know, the first time I started to hear that kind of language used around fail fast Generally, it was associated with software development you know, and vaporware and you know, build something you know, either at a hackathon or you know, overnight build a feature, build an app or something, get it out there, see how people use it. If people, if, if it gets adoption, great. If it doesn't, you know, move on, trash it, move on. Yep. And the idea is agile development and iteration and just improve, improve and evolve and evolve and eventually you'll get to something that, that sort of works. In that context, fail fast, fine as it sort of seems to have trickled into the entrepreneurial space, it's where I start to question it a little bit more and go, well, you know, failure and failing, like that has some quite serious implications when you're at certain levels of commitment. For example, commitment might be that you have suppliers that Mm -hmm. you owe money to. And if you fail and can't afford to pay those suppliers, Failure is not something to be glorified in that sense. You know, you have an obligation and a fiscal responsibility to do what's right because if those people don't get paid, then how do they pay their employees? Does your failure actually have a trickle-down effect to the failure of their businesses Mm -hmm. there's nothing to be excited about in that kind of failure and failing fast and the notion that failure can be okay and you know that um you know not to say that anybody should severely beat themselves up around failure but i just don't um think that it's easily dismissed uh sometimes as, as what these comments tend to suggest yeah and then as well, if you have employees relying upon you to pay their salaries, I'll go back to what we talked about before about the GFC. You know, the notion of failure for us at Taboo within the GFC, as you pointed out, meant that people lost their jobs, people lost their livelihoods. Yeah. You know, that failure weighed extremely heavily. And if we had have been, um, if Andrew and I were possibly a little bit more okay with failure and go, ah, oh, the GFC hit us, it wasn't our fault, ah, oh, we failed then there would have been a lot of debtors left unpaid Mm -hmm. and there would have been Mm -hmm. a lot of employees that lost jobs and weren't paid super severance, whatever, whatever, or, you know, we struggled to pay that. And at the same time, taboo would not exist right now. Yeah. Okay, that would suck. Yeah. (laughs) So... Yeah, I think in, in summary, I'd say that, um, you know, not, I'm not suggesting people should beat themselves up too much about failure, but I think the way that the term failure has started to uh, become quite flippant in the entrepreneurial space doesn't quite wash with me. Okay. So, Rich, what's exciting you right now? What's exciting me? Ah... Uh... Look, I, as I said before, in, the, in being in the food industry, I'm, I'm excited by the potential of Australia when it comes to food manufacturing. I think that there's a difficult road ahead still, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues that need to be ironed out. But I think, yeah, I'm excited about being in the business of food. I'm really excited about uh, uh, technology from the standpoint of. of Energy. I think that chaos is the mother of all invention. If that's Is that, what they, is that how the saying goes? I'm not sure. I don't know. But anyway, I'll look it um, up. <laughs> I'm watching this situation in South Australia quite intently yeah. um, and the energy crisis quite intently because I think it's really exciting that somebody like Elon Musk, you know, comments, even though it was just a tweet, but comments on the situation in South Australia yeah. and is there to um, back... In a way, Mm. the South Australian government and the moves that they're making towards clean energy, I do think it's a shame that the rest of Australia, and particularly the federal government and and the way the politics is going, that we aren't all behind South Australia Mm. and and, and supporting, whether they have blackouts or not, supporting them and their push towards trying to be a, uh, a, a clean state like that. But I think there's a lot of great innovation and technology and entrepreneurial opportunity in the areas of clean energy mm. um, here in Australia and the technology that can be developed around that so I'm excited by that I'm not involved in the space but I watch it pretty closely and I think that, that that's something to be um, um, yeah to be pleased with as as new things are released
0: mm-hmm. well Rich thanks for coming on the show today
1: thanks a lot I was um, really happy to be here I hope it's um, yeah,
0: been informative. Thanks for listening to Mate. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode, head to the website, matepodcast.com. I want to say thank you to Richard for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you to Josh Armour from Arma Pod Productions for editing this episode. The beautiful Made Podcast logo is by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. Also, thank you to Dan Sparks for your wonderful iTunes review. If you want to review the podcast as well, just head to um, madepodcast.com slash iTunes. It's a short link that'll take you right to the store. It would really make my day if you did that. And finally, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, feelings, um, if you just want to say thanks, or also just if you want to say hi, send me an email. Um, It's adam at matepodcast.com. I'd really love to hear from you um, wherever you are in the world. Uh, I saw there was people downloading the show from Fort Lauderdale in the US and from China and um, all around the place. So, um, please reach out. This podcast is made with love and dedication in Melbourne, Australia, Um, but I'd really love to hear where you're from. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. This was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now.